0: some decisions um, wanting to finish Revelation as we came into the time, uh, before we came into the time of, of Advent. So we did make make some decisions uh, about what we would cover. And one of the reasons we chose to cover cover 20 is because uh, in a lot of recent uh, End Times writings and in, in discussions of the End Times, uh, this passage uh, or Certain verses in this passage figure figure prominently, and so I will be up front and say that this is this is especially over the last 150 years one of the more debated passages in in Scripture. I'll also say this is is that there are things in Scripture that we are absolutely, completely, and fully sure of at all all times that that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God, that God created that um, that. Yahweh is to, to be worshipped. There are the, the core central beliefs that Jesus uh, gave his life so that we who sin against him might be saved. These are our, our core beliefs. And then there are other things in Scripture where we read and we have to read with charity because there are differing views. And at the end of the day, we have to ask, does this differing view, uh, does this differing view uh, impede a person from believing those things which we hold as, as central. In other words, is Jesus not magnified in in believing this? Is 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 grace not not exalted? Is the gospel somehow changed in in believing differently on this passage? And so I will say this: is that there are different ways to view um to view this passage. And honestly, as we've gone through through Revelation, we have we have taught uh, we have taught a view uh, of Revelation, and we have not delved as much into the into the more controversial subjects in other words we haven't gone deep into in, into the questions. Uh, you notice we haven't used if you've read in times books or, or those kinds of things we haven't used a lot of the terminology that you might commonly hear. Uh, the reason largely is we, we just believe that most of that is a is a function of modern interpretations that are not consistent with historical interpretations uh, which is not to say that the people who believe uh, certain things there, are, are necessarily uh, in, in sin. They have not changed the gospel, not that, but, um, but what we believe does have an effect. So, all of which is this is one case where I'm going to talk just a little bit uh, about those, those differing views and, and try and bring it into focus where we sort of land. At the same time, if you land someplace else uh, and you can open the Word of God. And in uh, reason, clearly from the teaching in the in, in the Word of God, and, and what you believe is tenable and doesn't doesn't impact the gospel, then then we, we really have no issue with that. We we would show charity to, to differing views. Unfortunately, some people would like to make uh, what you believe about the about the end times or the end of all things these these sorts of things uh, test cases for your Christianity. It's been interesting that over as I said, the last 150, 150 years uh, with the advent of, of, of what's called premillennial dispensationalism. With the advent of premillennial dispensationalism, which is itself um, a theological system that springs up in, a, in an actual place, in an actual time. The reason it springs up is because there's another theology out there that sprung up in a place of time called neo-orthodoxy. Neo-orthodoxy sought to believe the truths of scripture, but at the same time, kind of said it didn't matter whether it was historical. So a group of people started developing a, a, a theological system. A theological system springs up among certain groups of, of, of brethren and, and other people. springs up about 150 uh, years ago, and, and they develop a system for, for um, interpreting the Bible. That system for interpreting the Bible, although at, at every point... Um, uh, that is key. of Every point we talked about about being charitable, all everything that, I don't want to use the word important, but everything that is key, these are people who are followers of Jesus. These are people who proclaim the good news of, of Jesus. They're clear uh, on uh, the need for Christ and Christ alone. Uh, all of those sorts of things. They have a deep, deep, deep respect for, for Scripture. Um, there needs to be an awareness that, that some of the core kind of tenets of the core ideas are 150 years old and and happen for a reason but with the advent of pre-millennial pre-tribulational dispensationalism what has happened is that some people have taken those beliefs have adopted a way of viewing the end times and viewing the book of revelation viewing other things they debate about and so if you've If you've been around church culture, you might hear things like, are you pre-trib? Are you mid-trib? Are you pre-wrath? All of these sorts of things, which as you noticed, we preach revelation and don't use those terms, have not used those terms because frankly, that's a way of viewing scripture that they're, they're debating deeply, but is... Is not rooted deep in the history of of the church it is rooted more in the last one hundred and fifty years but what i was what I was going to say is that there are some from that camp then that would make that way of viewing scripture and how you viewed that whether you were this whether you were that way, this, they would make that a test case for for the depth of your faith the depth of whether you were a were, were a Jesus follower whether you were actually a a, a believer and so it, it was interesting or it is interesting that 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 it has seeped into our our culture, sort of the these views espoused by um, things like movies like Left Behind in in the 70s, uh, uh, movies like like the Left Behind in the book series Left Behind in the in the late. 90s early 2000s these sort of book series they they seep their way into popular evangelical culture and then people in the church started to believe that that was the common or regular belief of of the church and and so it it has become common well at the same time some of the people of of that belief that believe that anyone outside of that uh is outside of the faith and so that's an introduction to this idea simply to say this we're we're going to present a way of, of viewing things sometimes when you approach a passage there's there's questions you don't know which way you go you don't know how to make the determination how do you decide what this passage is saying or what this passage means when there's various ways of of interpreting it and i mentioned that to say this here's here's our philosophy of interpreting scripture when you interpret a passage of scripture it should be interpreted by other passages of scripture Right? So if you look at something you go, what does this mean? I don't know. You should look at other places in Scripture to determine what that means. We would also say then that, that's, um, that, that all people really uh, who, who approach the Bible have some sort of systematic theology. In other words, there's a way of viewing the whole of Scripture put together, the whole teaching of Scripture put together makes a makes a theology, we would suggest then that Scripture interprets Scripture and that Scripture is consistent with, its, with itself. And so when you look at one place in, in Scripture, it should be consistent with the teaching of the rest of Scripture elsewhere. Specifically, when you're dealing with a book like Revelation that uses words over and over and over and over again, if a word is used one way all throughout Scripture... And it's, and it's used again in Revelation, you should usually assume that it's being used in the, the same way. Sometimes it may be being used in a, in a different way, but you would use the context to tell you that, but it is it is most legitimate, or is legitimate to assume that probably the way in which that word is being used is as it's been used throughout the rest of the rest of, uh, the rest of of scripture. So we, we interpret by looking at what is the, the context of this. We interpret by looking at does this how were these words, how were these concepts used elsewhere throughout scripture, and is this consistent with the whole arc of what is being said in, in the rest of, of, of the Bible. And so the way we would come to interpret what we're going to talk about this morning is based upon those ideas. Now, uh, uh, another one that we that we would add, and if you're from uh, from a background that is um, an independent Bible church or a Baptist uh, a Baptist background, a lot of times this is one that you don't hear as much about. But we would say that the church has existed from the time of of Christ, and the church has taught certain things from the time of Christ. And so, while what they believed, you know, 2,020 years ago, you know, after uh, after Jesus or in the time of Jesus what they believed 2,030 years ago to, or I want to go the other way uh, so let's go this way I'm bad at math especially when I'm up front and talking so what I'm saying is if you go to 1,900 years ago 1,800 years ago 1,700 if you, as you come towards our time the church has believed some things in, in history and so it is appropriate for us to to ask what has the church historically believed and while we do not make Tradition, we do not make tradition equal with scripture when interpreting scripture that is hard to understand, or scripture that that is um that, that that is controversial, this sort of thing, we think it's appropriate to ask what has the church historically believed. We think that tradition is instructive, right? Jesus comes, he dies, he forms for himself an ecclesia, called out ones, a people he refers to that as the church paul writes to to the church and all of those this this book in uh, uh, of the bible revelation is written to seven churches in asia but the idea that connects all of this is that the the church of, of jesus christ is a is a people the church of jesus christ is a living people the church of jesus christ is a people chosen by by God and for God and so we would we would testify and agree that God if he has chosen a people if he has loved a people if he's died for a people if he's given a word to a people he's also faithful to preserve the interpretation of his word to those those people it is appropriate then for us not to lean on tradition as though it is scripture but where scripture is sometimes harder for us to understand or we're going it is appropriate for us to ask, what is the church historically believed about this? Right? And I think you know this because you do not want to walk into a church where um, every Sunday morning I give you, hey, I've got a brand new interpretation. Nobody has ever thought of this before. Right? I, I don't want to go to that church. You should not go to, to that church. If you're coming into the church of Jesus Christ, you want to know as well as you can what Jesus Christ was saying to his people. I am, am a mouthpiece, but one of my favorite things to say, uh, I tease all the time, sometimes people will read a passage of Scripture and say, let me tell you what this means to me, to which I always respond, no thanks, don't care. right? I don't care what that passage means to you. I want to know what that passage means to the one who wrote it. right? And you should not care what this passage means to me. Right, you should care what this passage means. There's an objective meaning; it's given by God, God the Father. And so, one of those things that helps us understand that is how has a passage been interpreted in in, in history. So, uh, this this passage in in Revelation 20. And let me actually just read. Let's read this chapter uh, quickly. So, put on your listening ears. We're gonna we're gonna fly through this, and then we'll we'll talk. We'll come back and talk about. But then. Uh, Verse one. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from the prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up and over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, For for from his presence earth and sky fled, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. because it's the only passage in Scripture that references what we in in modern Churchville, and some of you are like, I have not hung out in the church. I don't know what you. And I apologize. We have to do kind of this this background stuff. But this is where people get the concept of a millennium, right? Millennium just means thousand years, and so it is common in in the church to debate over various sorts of of millennial teachings. The church. Um, that I grew up in, and the popular teaching, uh, the, the, the teaching that you would get in a, in a left-behind book, uh, a Tim LaHaye book, would be called a, a premillennial teaching. And, and essentially the belief is this, is that Jesus comes and returns, he comes to earth, uh, and after he comes to earth, he establishes a kingdom on earth where he reigns, perhaps... Literally on the throne of David in Jerusalem, perhaps not, and he reigns for a thousand years over all of all of the all of the people of of the earth. After that, after that, there is a judgment, and then after the judgment, we go into the new heaven and the in the new earth. I am significantly shortening details, but but essentially, the idea in premillennialism is that Jesus returns before. The millennium, right? There's another set of beliefs out there called postmillennialism. Uh, as, as dispensationalism has, uh, dispensational premillennialism has become the pre- popular belief of our day. It's not the most common belief actually, but it's the popular belief. It's the one that's, that's written about. The, as that has become the popular belief of our day, before the world wars, there was another popular belief called postmillennialism. Postmillennialism is this idea that the, the work of the Lord continues to go forward, 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 forward. And so many people are converting and coming to Jesus that the whole planet essentially becomes Christianized, right? And the millennium for the post-millennial is usually, it just means a, a long amount of time, a figurative amount of time in which the kingdom and rule of God comes so significantly that the governments of the earth, that the, uh, that the policies of the earth, the, 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 the people of the earth, everything of the earth, becomes so significantly Christianized that everybody who is on the earth at that time essentially becomes a believer or a follower of Jesus. And then after that, Jesus himself returns and the judgment happens. It's called postmillennialism because though the thousand years is thought of as, as, as figurative, uh, it's that thousand years represents the reign where all the people come to, to Jesus and they all come, come to believe. This belief was super, super popular before the world wars. And the reason why is because we were in the beginning of of, of man's uh, 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 exploration, man's invention. Inventions were coming like crazy. Things were being invented. New stuff was happening. They had this unbridled belief in the potential of man. And everything seemed to be, when they were looking at their newspaper and looking at that everything's getting better. And if everything's getting better, maybe God is Christianized. It seemed as though, Everything was Christianizing. So before, if you go back to before the world wars, you would find that to be the most popular belief in in, in the church because they're like, look, everything's getting better. The time of uh, idealism, the time is coming. Then the world wars happened. They were awful. Uh, Awful things were ushered in, and this belief became, became less popular. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that what we talk about next is the, uh, is the historic view of, of the church, which is not to say that no one ever, throughout history, ever differed from from this, but I am going to say that it is probably, it, it is the most common. It seems to be what the what the early teachers of scripture believed. the the the, the This position is called amillennialism. Um, whereas in premillennialism, uh, Jesus returns, sits on a throne, literally on earth for for a thousand thousand years after that, a judgment. Post-millennialism, it's figurative, but everybody gets Christianized. When everybody's Christianized, Jesus comes and sits upon a throne, raises the dead, and and judges them. And amillennialism, it's misnamed. The word ah means no, no millennium. That is not uh, the belief of amillennialists. Amillennialists believe essentially this, that the millennium encompasses all of the period between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. And the reason that it is called a thousand years, the reason we talk about a thousand years is because the term a thousand in Scripture, as it's used, usually just means an indeterminate amount of time that is long. It is used figuratively. Almost every number throughout Revelation, we can demonstrate this. You think back to what we talked about. Almost every number we've used is a figurative number. The number 1,000 was used in the time in which this is written. The number of 1,000 in Scripture and even throughout Revelation is used to mean a long period of time. So amillennialism is the, the idea that the millennial reign of Christ is all that time between his first coming and his second coming so that we live in that that thousand years now. And after, at the end of this thousand years, at the end of the thousand year reign or the indeterminate amount of time, Christ will come and he will consummate human history as we know it. He will judge the living and the dead and he will usher in the new heaven and the new earth uh, and behold, he will make all things new. But that's that's in another passage. So we'll stick to this one. Those are kind of the three views I find that people who hold these views don't really typically um, understand much about each other my own background coming from uh, from premillennialism it's funny I came from a premillennial background they did not do a great job of teaching that to me and sometimes I have to ask Dave uh, if you don't know our offices are those blue doors back there there's a wall in the middle but the wall doesn't go to the ceiling so sometimes I have to yell over the wall and I'm like dude Explain to me what they're thinking here. And he tries to explain to me what they're thinking. And I just cannot comprehend it because I keep going, but why? Wait, what? It's like, it's sometimes incomprehensible to my mind. And I grew up in it. But Dave grew up in it with people who were better at at, at, at teaching him it. So he understands. So we talk about that. But I find that a lot of times we don't fully um, understand one belief or, or the other. Um, Anyways, uh, that's largely introduction. So I usually don't give you terms. I just kind of preach the Bible and let you believe stuff. Um, <laughs> right? Because I planted this church long enough ago that most of the people were also from Baptist congregations who had been taught their whole life that if you didn't believe in a pre-millennial, pre-tribulational rapture of the church that you probably weren't a Christian. And so I teach the Bible and I taught to Baptists what is essentially amillennialism. So if we're going to come out of the closet, so, so to speak, the, the, the teaching of, of Crosswinds is amillennial. The reason why is because we think it's biblical, we think it's historical, we think it makes the most of, of Jesus. And so usually um, I just teach you, and, and, uh, and, and I don't give you the terms so you can't go debate. Well, I'm a, I'm a pre-trib, mid-trib, uh, amillennial, niner, uh, whatever, whatever. Whatever you you debate about, I don't usually give that. I just kind of teach the Bible, but I'll, I'll give you this term in, in this case to say that we are uh, we are a millennial, and uh, we believe that is consistent with the with the history of the church. Uh, uh, but honestly, it's not something you'll see us rushing out there to to argue about. Uh, so I want to go to verse one of, of, of verse twenty. We need to kind of give that background to make this point. So. A premillennialist would believe that chapter that revelation is sequential, right? So chapter 1 happens before chapter 2, which happens before chapter 3, which happens before chapter 4. They also believe then that chapter 19 19 happens before chapter 20, right? And so they would believe in a sequential uh, view of Scripture. As we said at the beginning, we do not ascribe to a sequential view of, of Revelation. Rather, we believe that it happens in, in cycles. We believe that the number of cycles is seven. That, that God is repeating the same thing in seven different ways to give you different views of how things happen. So it will be our belief and our argument that the events of chapter 20 are essentially the same as the events of chapter 19 told from a different perspective. Chapter 20 does not happen After chapter 19, and we'll get into why in a minute here. So, uh, Verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Um, As to the angel, we could debate who that is. I don't find that productive. It doesn't say. Uh, It could be... uh, one of God's great and mighty warriors. It could be Christ himself. He, it doesn't say so. It's, it's not necessary. What we do know is that the angel comes down acting upon the authority of Christ, acting upon, uh, with the ability to carry out uh, the edicts of Christ and, and the power of Christ empowers him. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit. And he shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So what we are going to suggest to you is that that passage is a description of the time in which you live, right? Now, sometimes people, when, when, when you read it, you go, well, if Satan's bound, why did I sin this morning, right? To which I would respond, there's multiple things that make you sin. Satan is one of them, your flesh is another. Right, and the reality is, if you took Satan out of the world today, I would still have to live with me tomorrow, and sin would happen. So, but even in this case, specifically, this passage is, is referencing, is referencing a a a binding that's a specific binding. In this case, he is bound as to his ability to deceive the the nations. He's bound to a specific activity, and essentially, <coughs> what we what we think this. This means, in in as much as we interpret, is that Satan's ability to completely deceive the nations and shut down the work of of, of Jesus in the world has ended. And the reason that, that it's ended, or the reason that he can't do that, the reason the power of darkness cannot overcome the light is that he has been bound. How has he, has he been bound? It is our belief that he has been bound by the actions of Jesus Christ on the cross. That Jesus, when he was, when he was crucified for our sins, when he resurrected, overcoming death, that that bound Satan's ability to overcome darkness. That was, that was Jesus' way of essentially saying, look at the scoreboard, I have won. Now some people say, well, is Satan's bound, I don't get how he can be bound and not bound. Yet this is actually... We don't have time to flip to it, so I'll just tell you, but this is actually, Jesus uses this same terminology in Scripture when he talks about the, about the strong man. In, in, in Matthew, Jesus is talking about how, how if there is a strong man who has a, who has a house that no one can come in and steal out of the house of the strong man until the strong man has been bound, right? That is a reference, by the way, from Jesus to Satan, and his reference that as he goes on to talk about himself, the idea is that Jesus himself is the one that goes in and plunders the house of Satan he is essentially suggesting that the strong man has been bound, that he himself goes in and plunders the house because the concept is that he is in the business of rescuing people. He is in the business of carrying out his own glory. He is in the business of calling people to God. That is in Matthew where Jesus himself suggests that the strong man has been bound. The strong man then we should understand in terms of the power of darkness. We should understand that as satanic. We should understand that as a very similar reference to this and we should understand it as the very words of Jesus said, "You can't go in and plunder a house unless the strong man's been bound." And his reference in the gospel there in Matthew is that he's already gone on in and begun to plunder the house. And if he's plundering the house, then the strong man has been bound. So then, if that was true when Jesus said it in Matthew, we should have no issue with seeing it as being true when John repeats it repeats the exact same concept here in chapter 20 of Revelation. Satan has the strong man has been Bound. The idea is, though Satan has has influence and though Satan has power, he does not have the ability to completely blind all of the nations. He does not have the ability to make it so that anybody who Christ calls could not believe. Christ is an overcomer. He is plundering the the, the, the kingdom of darkness. He is overcoming the kingdom of darkness on on his own. So Satan was bound, right? Or Satan was defeated at the cross of Christ. He has been bound and put into the pit so he can't deceive the nations. In other words, Jesus, the, the, the gospel is going to advance. Jesus, after he says that in Matthew, that the, the strong man has been, has been bound, after he says that, that, he, that, um, that, that they're going to plunder the house, he gives to his disciples in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in all of the earth, going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, preaching the gospel. He gives them that command, the, the binding relates to the commission. When the commission has happened, I have bound Satan, so that your commission to go share Jesus with the entire planet it will be successful because I have bound the strong man. He cannot deceive those whom you go share me with. Those whom I call will come. Go into the nations. He's been bound. Go plunder for the uh, for the kingdom. And so Satan has been bound in in our time. Does that mean that that he cannot uh, carry out any evil? Does that mean he has no influence? No. But it does mean this that when we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, when we declare his his death, his burial, his resurrection when we declare his power, when we declare his kingdom, people will come because Satan does not have the ability to counteract. Satan does not have the, the ability to overcome. Satan does not have the power to overcome what Jesus has done. The cross is the chain around the neck of satan who has been bound and thrown in, into the into the pit throws him into the pit, shots it seals it over him so he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended after that he must be released for a little while we'll come back to that that phrase in a few minutes then i saw thrones and seated on them were those who had the authority to judge who was committed also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image. It had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the crux of verse, right? The thousand years. Someone said that, that thousand years must be literal and it must be at this time, it must be at that time. But here's, the, here's where that verse appears. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So, John's given a vision. What does he see in his vision? He sees the vision of people who have been persecuted and have died for their faith in Jesus Christ, sitting around the thrones of Jesus. Remember why, John, why is John writing the book of Revelation. He's writing it to the seven churches in Asia. Where is he writing it from? He's writing it from Patmos. Why is he not in Patmos? Because he's being persecuted for his faith. Remember, he's already been boiled in, in a vat of oil for following Jesus. So John had been persecuted, and he's writing to people who are being persecuted and will be persecuted more. Remember, we talked a few weeks ago about how the number 666 could be, depending on when you when you date revelation, a reference to Nero. But even if it's not a reference to Nero, it is definitely a reference to the emperors. And we talked about how the emperors have treated believers. So Nero, who we know the most about, has taken the believers and he's killed them in many different ways. He scapegoated them and blamed them for the, uh, he will scapegoat them and blame them for the destruction of Jerusalem. When he had parties before that, he would impale them, dip them in oil, light them on fire, and use them to light up his parties. So who is John writing to? He is writing to people who are being persecuted for their faith. He's writing to people who are seeing people seeing things happen, people who are worried, people who might be worrying, is the power of darkness too much? Does the dark side, if I could use that term, does the dark side or does Satan win? So he's writing to people who are in persecution, he's writing to people who are being killed, and they're wondering. Does Satan win or does Jesus win? John is given a vision by God. Essentially he said, go tell them this, that an angel comes down and Satan's been bound and it might look like he's winning, but he doesn't even have the power to deceive the nations. Don't worry about it. And then he says, and I want you to show them this, that yes, some of them are going to die. Some of them will be beheaded. Persecution is coming, but listen, you will sit and you will reign with Christ. If you die for your faith, you will reign with him. He's writing to people with actual physical experiences and physical words that they might die for their faith. And so the vision he has given is people have been beheaded for their faith, sitting with Christ. I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who would not worship the beast or its image, right? So the imperial cult, Caesar is Lord. All of these people say, worship me. Say that Caesar is Lord. All of these people refuse to say Caesar is Lord. Some of them have been beheaded. Some of them have died. And he wants to encourage them, if they take your life, know this. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and did not receive its mark on their forehead and hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The point is, they can take your physical life. But they can't do a thing, a thing to affect what God wants to do with you. They can't interrupt the plan of God. They can't stop the plan of God. They can't, they can't, there's not a thing they can do about it. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So what's the first resurrection? The first resurrection is the people who are followers of Jesus. How would they have they been resurrected? They were dead in their sins and trespasses, and they were resurrected through encountering the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came and he called dead hearts to himself, they were resurrected, right? Isn't that the teaching of Scripture? You were dead in your sins and trespasses. Not sick. Not, not doing well. Not, not, not. Sort of dead. You're dead. You were dead. So, what of these people? These were the people who experienced the first resurrection. They had been raised from the death of their sin into the new life of following Jesus, and they have died for it. This is the first resurrection. Blessed is he, and holy is he who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. So there's a first resurrection. What's the first resurrection? The resurrection of our hearts, our souls, and our persons to the person of Jesus Christ. When he calls us, uh, Ephesians 1, 4, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So that the truth of scripture is that God calls sinners and sinful people out of death, right? We were talking the other day, uh, Haley and I, uh, uh, um, we had a bad situation a rough week at Goblin Heights and we lost one of our students and we were talking about the reality that Jesus himself is disgusted by death and the effects of death and that put us onto the story of, 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 of Lazarus and the story of Lazarus who Jesus' friend who is in the tomb and he's in the tomb for days and Jesus shows up at the grave and says Lazarus come forth and then Lazarus comes out of the grave Though he was dead, though Jesus has already sobbed over that reality, Lazarus comes out of the grave, and Jesus says one of my favorite things in all of Scripture, get those grave clothes off him. Right? Why? Because living people don't wear dead people clothes. Right? So Jesus is a a resurrector, but what he did to Lazarus physically... It is, is a sign of what he is, does to all of us spiritually if we know him, that we are dead in our graves, right? Don't get mixed up in any hocus pocus silly sort of story where you were out there looking for Jesus. This is what I know. Dead people don't look for anything. They're dead. And you were a dead person in a grave, not looking for Jesus, not looking for anything. You were going about the business of rotting. And Jesus showed up at the grave grave door of your life. And if you know him, he called to you as he said to me, David, come forth. I was made alive in Christ. Therefore, I believe. And if you know him, you were made alive in him. He called you out of your grave by name, though you were dead. If you have not taken place in that first resurrection, I have bad news for you. There is a second death. See, if you know the first resurrection, as they did, you've been called by Jesus out of the grave. The second death has no power. Lazarus is going to die eventually again, right? Lazarus called out of the grave, but sometime he is going to stop breathing. But he knew Jesus so that though his body died, the second death had no power. And what is the second death? Second death is separation from God. It's, it's the pit. It's described later on in the passage. But the second death is the eternal punishment of those who have re- refused to follow Jesus, those who are enemies against Jesus, those who are rebels against Jesus, those who have not been called to new life will experience a second death. But here, he's encouraging those who have per- been persecuted. Man, the, you're, you're part of the first resurrection. And the second death doesn't have any power over you. It is an encouragement to those who are in, uh, in persecution. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. He's saying, hey, the emperor can take your breath, but I have already rescued your soul. The emperor can take your blood. But my blood has already cleansed you. And the second death, hell, damnation, torment, all that stuff, has no power over you. That's the encouragement he's given. So then verse 7 says this. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. parentheses growing up uh, there was all kinds of prophecy experts and one of the things the prophecy experts like to do is determine which nations were Gog and Magog all the time they're like well one of those is East Germany and the other is the USSR right the problem with predicting which countries are what is that neither of those countries in its form exist anymore right so I don't think that this is given to us to suggest to us which earthly kingdom it is. It is given to us to suggest that earthly kingdoms are, set themselves up and rebel against God. It doesn't matter who Gog or Magog is. In fact, I would say that they don't have a direct physical referent, but rather it's just the, 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 the nations of the earth, the people of the earth followed Satan and they followed darkness, and they wanted to rebel against God. And so they get together. Here's the thing. Satan gets let out at the end of time. we got to deal with the Satan. The, the Satan's in the pit. Let's deal with this Satan issue. The, the Satan gets let out, and he's like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to get my boys together, right? So he goes and gets his boys. Satan gets his boys. He, he goes to the four corners of the earth. He goes to Gog and Magog, gather them for battle. He gets lots and lots of peoples, right? He rounds up lots of peoples because it says their number is like the sand of the sea. And they march up over the broad plain uh, of the earth. And they surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city. So um, I like when God does stuff and, and writes into it. I don't know if it's intentionally humorous. Or unintentionally humorous, but I like when God does stuff. So here's what happens: Satan gets let out of the pit. Satan goes out, rounds up everybody, gets them all together, going, "We're gonna take them this time. We're gonna get it. We're gonna overcome the the. We're gonna overcome the light. We're gonna overcome the people of God, right? And so they march to the to the city of God, uh, best understood as the as the people, not not a not a literal physical city. That is a New Jerusalem reference, not a not a physical. Uh, Jerusalem reference and so Satan and, and, and his buddies and all the nations of the earth are like marching we're like we're going to get them we're going to get them and they seem to have marched a long ways I want you to know <laughs> what happened is that, that it describes what happened you know it comes to the corners of the earth they're at the four corners there Gog Magog they gather for battle their numbers like the sand of the sea they march, march up and over the broad plain of the earth they surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city they put a lot of work into that You know, they get there, Satan and his boys put in a lot of work. And then God (laughs) says this. And then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. (laughs) You took like verse 7, verse 7 through like just the end of of, of verse 9. Things are going real well, you know? We're putting the band back together. Come on, everybody. Posse up. They marched over the, like, you know. I mean, we're it not for the fact that being destroyed and being thrown into death and hell is worse. Personally, I'd be kind of annoyed that you made me walk that far for this, right? They march across the plain. They surround the city. We're going to get them this time, guys. Like, that's a great thing about Satan. He don't really learn. I, like, Jesus is the resurrected one. Like, you saw him put to death, and three days later, he was alive. You might want to learn a lesson, but Satan and his peoples never learn the lesson. They surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire comes down from heaven, and it consumes them. This is, by the way, the same thing that happened in the chapter 1 before, Ver, cha, uh uh uh, Revelation chapter 19, the battle of Armageddon, that battle that that, 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 that Jesus wins over Satan, same battle, same concept, saying in another way, the point is this, is that Jesus wins, Satan doesn't, that's the end of the story. And it's written in this place for these people because they're under persecution and they have legitimate worries about whether they're going to win. They have legitimate worries about whether Jesus wins. They legitimately have seen members of their family probably and people that they know literally killed for following Jesus Here, John says, here's the good news. Satan's going to be let out for a minute. He's going to gather everything together. He's going to set it all up. And Jesus is going to stomp it like a bug. And the devil who had received them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Right? Satan got let out of one place. It was just a prison transfer. That's all that was you're let out for a minute. He goes and rounds up some people. Jesus stomps him and he wipes him out forever. When the fire from heaven comes, right? The fire from heaven, how do we interpret that? This is how historically people have understood that, that when the fire comes from heaven, it's to be understood as the return of Jesus. The millennium ends. Why does the millennium? And the thousand years, because the thousand years is all the time between Jesus first coming and his next coming. But here comes Jesus, right All those great references in Scripture. Here he comes on, on the cloud with shouts, uh, the shouts and the trumpets and the angels and everybody coming. He comes in glory for the believer. He comes in rescue for the believer. He comes in consummation for the believer, but his mere presence is like fire from heaven and damnation to those who are rebels against him. And Satan gets wiped out because Jesus just came back. The reason we know, by by the way, um, just quickly, this is is one of the reasons for interpreting uh, this passage the way we do. And understanding that that Jesus returns and the millennium ends instead of Jesus returns and the millennium begins. The reason why is because every time you see the return of Jesus Christ in Scripture, the judgment of everybody who opposes Jesus Christ happens immediately after in Scripture. If you go to the, go to the Gospels and you read the parable of the wheat and the tares, the tares grow amongst the wheat until what? Until Jesus returns. And at that time, what happens? Jesus wipes out the terrors. And you look all over scripture, every time there's a return to Jesus, the judgment happens immediately afterwards. And the problem with an idea that says, well, Jesus returned, and then there's a millennial kingdom, and then there's rebels against Jesus. Where'd the rebels come from? Because when Jesus returns, sin's wiped out. When Jesus returns, Death death itself is judged. When Jesus returns, Satan is destroyed. When Jesus returns, all of the people are judged. Judgment happens immediately connected to the return of Christ every time it happens in Scripture. And if Jesus has returned before the millennium and he has judged, who are these people who marshaled their strength and their energy to rebel against Jesus at the end of the millennium? Now, I asked that to, to the resident office expert. He explained to me what they believe. My answer simply is, why? That is silly. That is a creative and fanciful retelling that does nothing to advance the reality that Jesus is Lord. Right? They have answers. I'm not going to go into them. They don't make much sense. Right? Why would that happen? It is is—it is a fanciful retelling wherein Jesus returns, wipes out all evil. Over the next thousand years, though there's no evil, the people who are on the earth repopulate the earth and then some more people become evil and it's the offspring of the evil. That does not seem to be, like I said at the beginning, consistent with how scripture functions. It's not consistent with how revelation has functioned. It's not consistent with the, with the story. There is no evil after Jesus returns. The judgment of Christ follows the return of Christ always. You cannot have a thousand years after his return and then have evil pop back up. He has dealt with it. When Jesus comes, he comes in victory. That's why it said back one chapter, of, in 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 chapter 19. Remember, Jesus comes in chapter 19. He's got written on his on his thigh, uh, tattooed on his thigh, if you would. King of kings and Lord of lords. He's got a white robe, but his white robe is, is red is red because it's been dipped in blood. It's not his own. It's the blood of his enemies. And it tells us in chapter 19 that he wipes out all of his enemies. Right? Chapter 20 is a retelling of that same story from a different point of view. But the same concept is true. Jesus has returned, and when he returns, he wipes out his enemies enemies. And if 20 happens at the same time as 19, then the millennium must be all the time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. And what do we look forward to now? We look forward to the coming of Jesus in glory. He is coming back. He's physically coming back. He's coming to wipe out all evil. He's coming to permanently destroy Satan and pa- cast him into the pit. He's coming to take care of all sickness, all, all pain, all tears. He's coming pre- uh, especially to wipe out your sinfulness. He's coming to wipe out all those who have rebelled against him. But when Jesus comes, his enemies die. That is a reality. And when his enemies are wiped out, you get the fullness of the experience of who Jesus is. And I am, (laughs) the the reality is, I do not need Jesus reigning on a temporary throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years with another additional part of uh, 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 of the story. I need Jesus to come now wipe out evil and bring the new heaven and the new earth. Now come quickly, Lord. That is what we are looking for. So in, in, uh, in verse chapter 9, I mean in verse 9 of chapter 20, but fire came down from heaven. That's your Lord. That's your Lord. He's coming and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, the earth and the sky fled away. No place was found for them. See, Jesus returns, judgment happens, always together, always together. There's no separation. There's no 1,000-year interval between the return of Jesus and the judgment of Jesus. They're always together. Then I saw a great white throne and him seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had dead. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the fire you want to be people of the first resurrection over whom the second death has no power the books are open the books contain all the deeds all the deeds that you've done all the deeds that that you, that you, you will do but I'm glad it mentions this other book there's another book thank goodness for this book this is the book of life Praise God that I will be judged according to whether my name is written in the book of life. And I praise God that my name is written in the book of life, not because of the deeds that I have done, but because of what Jesus has done. That when the book of life is opened up, my name is written in there, not because I'm good naturally, I'm not. I'm depraved, I'm sinful, right? Like I said, take Satan out of the world. I still sin tomorrow. I am sinful. I was born sinful, I was born a sinner, and enemy of God, and yet God in his goodness, as I mentioned from Ephesians 1, 4, God chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Which tells me this, is that because of God's good choice, my name has been written in the book of life, so that when they open up the books, I will have deeds in the book. Why? Because I'm good? No, because the Holy Spirit is. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to God. It says in Romans chapter 8, it says it says that those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. The Holy Spirit is at work in the life of a believer, so that I will have deeds in the book. Here's the reality. You'd have no deeds in the book if you didn't know Jesus. It'd be a, it, your, well, you'd have deeds in the book, but you'd have no good deeds in the book. It would be a book of everything you've ever done, and everything you've ever done would be evil. Even the good stuff you do. You ever try and do good stuff and then really examine your motives and realize, oh wow, even the good stuff I did was junk, right? I'm gonna remind you just because it seems pertinent that, that that it says all our righteousness is as filthy rags. All our righteousness is as dirty refuse, right? All our righteousness. See, righteousness is the good works you do. That's you apart from Jesus, even the good stuff you do. Is filthy rags. But Jesus. But Jesus comes along and he calls his children. But Jesus comes along and he conforms us to the image of the Son. But he gives us the Spirit, He begins a good work in you. That so that the blood of Jesus is applied not only to your salvation, but also to your works. Even your works are redeemed. You'll have something in the book. If you know Jesus, then the Spirit is transforming you. Most importantly, your name will be written in the book of life. And you'll be judged according to what you have done. And one of those things you've done is you've done been resurrected by the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? There's coming a day, but then there's these. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if any man's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We don't talk about that a lot, right? In modern Churchville. Right? We don't like to, like, even myself, I've, I try and find ways to nuance that because, like, I don't really want to be thought of like as angry brimstone guy, you know, like like the dude who's standing on the corner with signs with a list of stuff that you did. You're going to hell because of this. You're doing this, right? I don't want to be that dude. But here, here's the reality. That message, that message is true for all of us that apart from Jesus Christ, hell is real. Apart from, I mean, hell is real and apart from Jesus Christ. That's where you're going to spend eternity. And I'm a good news guy. I prefer to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. But the good news, the good news encompasses this bad news that anybody who does not know Jesus will die apart from him and will be thrown into the pit of fire. They'll be thrown into the lake of fire forever. That's hell. And anybody who doesn't know Jesus is going to end up there under his judgment because he's going to open the book and their name's not going to be in it. But I'm a good news guy, and the good news is this, is that Jesus came to save sinners. Paul said Jesus came to save sinners of whom he was chief, right? Paul, Paul, Paul was on his way to go and kill some Christians when, when Jesus knocked him off off the animal he was riding onto his behind and said, Paul, you work for me now. going to save you and so Paul was radically saved and his name was written in the book of life and he spends the rest of his life trying to get other people to come to Jesus so here's here's my point I guess is that as you look at this I mean we are people believe that Jesus is one day soon going to come back We believe that one day the sky is going to crack. We believe that one day descending upon a cloud will be the Lord Jesus Christ, that the trumpets will resound, that angels will shout, that Jesus himself will come to earth, that we will meet if we know Jesus, we'll meet him in the sky and we'll bring him down to our our planet, the the, the kingly one, and he will be here. But we also believe this, that when he comes, he's going to judge the living and the dead. I do not want to be the kind of person who lives for the glory and the reality that Jesus is coming for me and not care about the fact that he's coming to deal with you too. My hope is that we will be the kind of people who use this to inspire us to proclaim the good news. Jesus is real. Heaven and the new earth are real. So is hell, guys. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said something like, if people have to go to hell, if people are marching to hell, let them march over our dead bodies trying to keep them from going. Which is a really, really daved up, probably uh, uh, messing up with that quote. But that's essentially what he said. Listen, he's coming again. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. I challenge you with this. Do you know him? If you know him and your book is written in the the book of life, if your name is written in the book of life, what joy! This this passage was written for you. Don't worry, no matter what happens in this life, if your name is written in the book of life, the second death has no power over you. This life, uh, Romans says, these momentary afflictions are nothing compared to the glory that is coming. Right? This life... If you know the first resurrection, then the second death has no power. It's written for you, hear that. But this is also written too. There are people out there who do not know Jesus, who need to know Jesus. And if you care about them, if you love them at all, and if you love Jesus at all, because let's not forget that every time the word work was used in reference to, to, to the church in the book of Revelation, it meant the work of sharing the good news of Jesus with people. If you care at all about Jesus, then you will follow him and you will testify of him every place you go. You'll look people in the eye and you'll have hard conversations. You'll say difficult things like hell, which no one wants to say. You'll say the hard things, but you'll testify to this, that Jesus is Lord and he died and he resurrected and he overcame sin and he overcame death and he overcame hell so that we can know him. Go find people and beg them to come to Jesus. That's what I hope we'll do.